I mean, what's pro football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful about slings. Am I going to get sued? We got legal on this? Let's send you out on the right note. Uh, PFF sucks. Have a great day. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast, Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson, coming to you from Radio Media Row here in, uh, where are we? Las Vegas. Las Vegas, yeah. It's Friday. Mandalay Bay Convention Center. It has been, uh, it's been a long month this week. It has, yep. Here in Vegas. And uh, it's our Friday edition of PFF NFL podcast. Yeah. How you doing? Yeah, survive. Yeah. I'm alive. Just. We haven't even done anything crazy, and I'm exhausted. Right. Right? But it's, uh, no, it's been a good week here. I had a nice, you know, debate with myself this morning about going to the gym. Oh, yeah, who won? Uh, not me. <laughs> um, didn't win the day, but I did shave my head, so. We won the day on Tuesday. We went to the gym day one. Yeah. Have not been back since. No. And uh, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow's the day, Saturday Maybe morning. this afternoon. Maybe I'll win the battle later. You never know. Um, so, yeah, fun little week here. We've got NFL Honors was last night. Yep. Uh, somewhere around here in Vegas. We didn't go to the red carpet. <laughs> Went to bed instead. <laughs> but uh, we're going to talk about the awards, a little awards reaction. We had news yesterday. Mike Zimmer being hired as the defensive coordinator going back to the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, we have uh, Dr. Alan Sills, mm-hmm. the chief medical officer of the NFL. We uh, put this on YouTube already, but we're going to stick that at the end of the show here talking to Dr. Alan Sills. We had a very good discussion with him. Yeah, we had him on last year, and, and he's actually a really interesting person to talk to. Um, you know, all we asked him, gave him some hard-hitting questions, you know? Hey, I think how come you're not following the safety, you know, direction? Yeah. And he had some pretty good answers, I, I asked think. him about rule changes maybe leading to more injuries. Is the NFL, I didn't say it this way, but getting a little <laughs> greedy, you know? Getting the money and, you yeah. know, causing more injuries. So we'll get into that later in the show. But let's start with the uh, the NFL award show. What was your... Do you have a biggest surprise coming out of last night? Um, were there? Uh, there weren't that many surprises, I don't think. I guess the comeback player of the year one is probably the most surprising, or the fact that Lamar Jackson's MVP was one vote away from being unanimous. I mean, I think we all expected him to be MVP. For it to be forty-nine to one, felt a little, you know, too dominant. You would say. Yeah, like the one, but the one the, vote. The thing that defined this year was that there was no you know, right. obvious, unanimous, consensus MVP for basically the entirety of the year. And then the 49ers game happened and everyone went, all right, Lamar did it, MVP. Right. At least everyone, 49 of the 50 people, of yeah. whom I am one. You're one of the 50. I am. You are, I saw the list. It's a it's a decent list overall, plus Emmanuel Acho. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's, what? It's, uh, it's a good list of people and you are one of them. Thank I you, thank that. you. Um, yeah, it, it wasn't, it was weird because the MVP race was completely wide open right. and then turned into one of the most lopsided votes in history. And it, I, I'm, again, I'm not saying Lamar didn't deserve it or anything. I think he did. Yeah. It was fine. But I don't think it should have been as dominant. I thought that there would be more first place votes. It became very narrative driven toward the end because Lamar peaked at the end in the Dolphins game, particularly that 49ers game on Christmas night. Like Brock Purdy was a few weeks away from being you know, the consensus MVP and he got zero first place votes. He only got nine second place votes. Like his yeah. his his candidacy was destroyed the day that Lamar's was built. Um, yeah, I think I think there's um, the comeback player of the year award. My 
initial takeaway on that, Joe Flacco getting it over DeMar Hamlin and probably the Lamar stuff. With eight fewer first place votes. Yes, we'll talk about why that is. I mean, we, we joke on here about how even keel we are and, you know, we try to, you know, bring some, some uh, you know, level-headed analysis here. Yeah, people hate that. People can't stand that. Right. But, you know, you, I think that nothing sums up the recency bias stuff than the Comeback Player of the Year award and maybe Lamar Jackson having 49 votes. By the way, you know, congrats to Lamar Jackson. Incredible. Absolutely. You know, second MVP. Two-time MVP. Youngest player to have an MVP. And to be clear, as one of the 49 people that voted for him, I you do agree that yeah. he should be the MVP. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, just surprised that it was 49. I agree with you. And But the one person who voted against is getting some hate. It's Aaron Schatz, formerly right. a Football Outsiders, now of uh, FTN, Fade the Noise, I believe. Um, <laughs> Schatz is like defended himself. Why did he have Josh Allen first and Dak Prescott yeah. second, I believe? And it's like, dude, that's. I thought more people would have that take. I'm sure. going to stand with Aaron, at least having... Um, not necessarily the exact take, but I thought more people would go down that path. Aaron was one of those people who wrote up his uh, awards and his AP, uh, basically his ballot, right, for the for the um, All-Pro and for his awards, wrote the whole thing up in an article, explained his logic in each and every pick. And, and I don't mean yesterday. I mean, he did this, you know, weeks ago when he put in the ballot. And, you know, there's people out there going, this is just a contrarian pick to drive people to your website, to clicks. Like, the man wrote it up weeks ago, right? He didn't know it was yeah. going to be controversial at the time he wrote it up. I didn't think it was going to be 49 yeah, you, to 1. You're not, like, the, the 50 voters don't get together right. and, like, raise their hand. It's all so, secret ballot. I would say, look, if you want to dignify the guy with reading his explanation. If you don't want to, if you think he's still full of it, fine. That's your prerogative. I think he's wrong. I voted for the other guy. But... You know, he's not doing that just to drive clicks to his website. Like, he wrote this up weeks ago. If you want to go read his explanation, go read his explanation. You know, but it's it's his opinion, and I don't think it's a crazy one. So congrats to Lamar Jackson on the MVP. I think that was well-deserved, well-earned. We're just, you know, breaking down the um, the breakdown of the votes. Um, I want to talk about Comeback Player of the Year and what happened there. But first, is 2024 bringing exciting or unexpected changes to your life? Here's a secret weapon to help you face those challenges with more confidence. It's a great term life insurance policy. That's right. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to protect your family's financial future so you can focus on what's ahead knowing your family is protected if something else unexpected happens. Fabric was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Get your personalized quote in just minutes and apply when it's convenient for you. It's all online and on your schedule. You can go from start to cover in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. So join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect your family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash pffnfl. That's meetfabric.com slash pffnfl. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash pffnfl. Policy is issued by Western Southern Life Insurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting health questions. Uh, by the way, as I did the other day when Dan Marino walked by, I will point out if I see somebody really important or, you know, fun or whatever it might like be. Like Greg Olson right there. We just talked to Greg Olson. We did. We gave him kudos. We said, good job, Greg. You do a great job on the broadcast. And he uh, and he said, hey, thanks thanks for all you do. Yeah. To Sam and Steve. He did. So uh, Greg thinks we do a good job, too. It was a, Yeah. And one of the guys with him was like, hey, big fan of the show. Absolutely. He's probably listening right now. Um, so, no, it was great um, running into people over here. So, Comeback Player of the Year Award. Yeah. I thought it was a lot. I thought this was, like, the easiest award ever. DeMar Hamlin came back from death, had the most first-place uh, votes, but did not win the award in favor of Joe Flacco. It's interesting. So usually the, the the AP has only been doing this for a couple of years where they've done they've awarded a point system, right? You have first place, second place, third place, you get different points for each one. So it isn't just who got more 
first place votes. That's the way it used to be done. Now it's who got the most points when you add in essentially a, a ranked choice system. I think generally speaking, that is an improvement and a good way of doing it. Eventually Agreed. we're going to get an MVP much like this, who wins MVP with fewer first place votes than the guy that didn't win MVP, and that's going to cause all kinds of chaos. Um, I do think, however, that in this very, very specific instance, the ranked choice system probably ends up producing a bad result. Now, it was very close. Joe Flacco has 151 points, DeMar Hamlin has 140, but eight more people uh, thought that DeMar Hamlin was the comeback player of the year than Joe Flacco, but because of the nature of his comeback, right, and, right. you know, Comeback Player of the Year is a very, like, nebulous, you know, difficult to define award, which My is the whole My least favorite award, Sam. Right, I know, and a lot of people's, which is why it's very difficult to define and articulate and all those kinds of things. But basically, people with DeMar Hamlin fell into one of two camps. Either they were like, well, he's clearly the Comeback Player of the Year, the same way Alex Smith was when he came back from almost having his leg amputated. It didn't matter how much he played. It didn't matter whether he played well. Simply stepping back on an NFL field after yep. what he went through one makes him... Now, right, makes him comeback player of the year. You either fell into that camp, which you and I are both in, or you fell into the camp of saying, he wasn't even good and he didn't play when he came back. Therefore, how can he be comeback player of the year? We need to give it to a guy that played and played well. Now, so anyone, anyone in that camp basically didn't even have Hamlin on the ballot, right? They're like, he's not comeback player of the year at all. I'm going Baker Mayfield one, Joe Flacco two, Tua Tagovailoa three, you know, whatever. So I think a ranked choice system hurts DeMar Hamlin's case in an unusual way that is usually not applicable. You're right. You're either all, you're either all in or all out right. when it comes to DeMar Hamlin. Now that being said, I do think it's vaguely funny that seven people of the voters had him second. Seven people processed this and said, that's a really impressive comeback. The man died on the field. You know, we didn't know if he was going to have brain damage for like several days afterwards. We, did, we certainly didn't think he was going to play again. He got all the way back. He played in an NFL game. He played, you know, whatever it was, 15, 20 snaps over the regular season, more in the playoffs. Really impressive comeback, but it's not quite as impressive as just an old man coming off the couch and playing mid-ball for six games. Seven people came to that conclusion. Fourteen people. For six games. Fourteen people came to the conclusion that it's really impressive, but it's less impressive than old man Flack over six games and one other dude, like Stafford coming back from being hurt for a while. I don't yeah. understand that I, as a process. Like I, those people have some questions for. I completely agree with you on the all or nothing aspect of this affecting Hamlin and the award. I think this is a good time for me to rail against the, uh, the recency bias of the human brain and the current news cycle that we live in here. You know, what if, hypothetically, DeMar Hamlin had the on-field incident in, say, I don't know, November, and was able to come back by the, the end of season. December, right, within the same season? Would that change your vote? Like, well, he came back from death. Now, th th the fact that he did it in two months versus... Seven well, months, okay. would that have changed things? It's even, it's, I think it's a Flacco-specific thing. I mean, even it's the fact that Flacco's run happened right at the end. Happened right, right at the end. And it, it, it went it, into the playoffs. It also wins the award probably every, any, any other year yeah, because but, he came off the couch but, and led a playoff team. But the point being, it, it's, it's the fact that it happened acutely at the end of the season right when the votes are going in. That's the recency bias at work because if you take Flacco out of this, Hamlin beats Baker Mayfield, who had what is just a conventional comeback, right? right he was right. bad last year. He Flacco's wasn't expected to be a starter. And this year he came in and played well. Yeah. Like Baker is the conventional comeback player of the year story. 
and in a year without Joe Flacco and DeMar Hamlin, Baker Mayfield wins Comeback Player of the Year over Matthew Stafford, over Tua and his concussions, over, you know, Brees Hall, Brock Purdy, Calvin Ridley, blah, blah, blah. Baker is your conventional Comeback Player of the Year. DeMar Hamlin is a, you know, once ever story. So DeMar Hamlin trumps the usual Comeback Player story of Baker Mayfield. And then only Joe Flacco rocking up with like the last month of the season and going on this acute run into the playoffs, like jacks the whole thing sideways and the recency bias makes him come back player of the year. It's recency bias in favor of Flacco. It happened late, but also against Hamlin because that happened last year in January. Right. But I think but it's only how, when you when the, both of those happen at the same time is it but, is it effective. But this is what's driving me crazy, man. Like, do, do people forget? Football shut down for a few days. Yeah. Like, team, we didn't even know if there was going to be games. The whole playoff structure got changed. They canceled a game. Like, they canceled the Bills-Bengals game. They didn't restart it. Which is, like, the first time ever that happened, right? right. It's the first we game spent, that's been abandoned in ever. Was it ever? We had to ever? do multiple podcasts that week, you know, trying to make sense of things. And, like, we couldn't talk really about anything right. else, right? Football stopped. The sports world kind of stopped a little bit for a few days to yeah. kind of figure out what was going on here. Um, and eventually, you know, you came back and you, you, and there was more normalcy after that. But it was just an amazing story every step of the way. People want to know, you know, how's Hamlin doing? You know, and then even just to like standing up and taking a first step and waving to people and all these different things. Like that happened within the last calendar right. year and of when these votes were placed, and we still forgot it because Joe Flacco played five games. I'm just that, to me, it's just more a microcosm of how the new cycle in our mind works to like the last thing that we saw. And also because Not he's, the most impactful right, thing that we because saw. Because his, his recovery has been so complete and he's gotten back onto the field and onto an NFL field, something that most people never achieve in the first place, people assume that was always a given, right? At the time, like when it happened, they got him, you know, they got his heart starting again, they got him into the hospital. He was in a coma for like a couple of days. Right. When he was in the coma, a lot of medical professionals were saying for the amount of time that he was down, his brain was starved from oxygen. There is a very good chance that he is brain damaged at this point and may not live a normal life at all, let alone come back and play in an NFL game. So we can't like revise history and go, ah, once they got it going again, like once he undied on the field, he was it was all smooth sailing right. from that point on. He's right? just a special teamer. Right. It was all it was all easy for men. Like it was a very real. We did it, not think that this guy was going to play football again. It's to me, it's just a microcosm of uh, the world we're in right now and the way people react. I mean, again, a year ago before the AFC Championship, there was discussion that well, if, if Joe Burrow beats Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow is the best quarterback in the NFL. Right. Now it's like. Patrick Mahomes leads the Chiefs to 17 points. Plays really well, by the way. But this, the, because they made it to the next Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes is the greatest quarterback of all time now because this game happened. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we just we just can't have a normal... Mike Matthew Stafford won the Super Bowl. Put him in the Hall of Fame! There's no other way. There's no middle ground. Yeah, He's not just a very good quarterback. Like, everything is at the extreme right now. Yep. There's no normal anymore. Anyway. Um, it's the most we're ever going to talk about the Comeback Player of the Year award. Cool. I hope. Defensive Player of the Year, Sam. Yeah. You had a good day yesterday, overall. Miles Garrett won. I haven't seen you smile in, I don't know, forever. Yeah. And you were smiling. We had a, we had a good lunch yesterday. We had a good lunch. You were happy. And that night, Miles Garrett wins Defensive Player of the Year. Yeah. Not because you're biased, but because you just, you know. I was you simply. Think the right guy won. I do think the right guy won, and I was simply happy that my mentions were not quite the dumpster fire they would have been had TJ Watt won. Um, and you know it was interesting. It was close. Very Miles close. Garrett, vote. 
23 first place votes compared with 19 for TJ Watt, 7 for Micah Parsons, which results in 165 points for Garrett, 140 for TJ Watt, and then 89 for Micah Parsons. Micah Parsons, by the way, who came out and said that Miles Garrett was Defensive Player of the Year. Like a yeah. guy that other people, largely Steelers fans, have been saying, Micah Parsons has a stronger case for Defensive Player of the Year than Miles Garrett. Like, look at the numbers. Garrett, or Micah Parsons came out and said, that's a, that's a stupid take. Garrett was the best defensive player this season. Watch the tape. Don't just look at stats. So, look, Steelers fans have been doing that for months already. It's like, ah, look at the stats. Garrett only had, you know, one sack at the end of the season. Yada, yada, yada. The players, the AP voters, Micah Parsons, people watching the tape recognize that Miles Garrett was a dominant force, even if he wasn't in the playoff game and therefore deserved Defense Player of the Year. The, uh, my quick summation on that is, you know, because we've been defending this for a while. Yeah. It's not that we're, we're not downplaying the importance of the sack on the, uh, for the defense. Correct. Sacks are awesome. The two things, the two points I want to make is there's other ways to create production in the, in the NFL than any traditional stat that keeps being posted out there. There are other ways besides tackles, sacks, tackles for losses, passes defense, or whatever else is being thrown out there. There's other ways to provide production. And then, yes, the sack is very important. And usually, when you win very quickly, you're either going to get those sacks or maybe someone else on your team is. Or it's going to force an incompletion or an interception. All that stuff matters. All you can do is isolate what the player brings to the table. And I agree, Miles Garrett deserves Defensive Player of the Year. Yeah, and the final point I'll make about this is it is not disrespect or hate to suggest that a man was in the top five best defensive players in the NFL no, in a given not. season. It's not disrespect. Right. So nobody is saying TJ Watt feels sucked. disrespected. He's upset. Right. TJ feels upset. Nobody is saying he had a bad year. Nobody is saying he wasn't good. Nobody is saying he wasn't great. We're simply saying he was not defensive player of the year. As, by the way, were the players. As, by the way, has Michael Parsons said. It is fact now. I think TJ Watt is great. He is an awesome player. Correct. I think the voters got it right, though. Yeah. Um, other interesting stories coming out of the voting. CJ Stroud, yep. AP Offensive Rookie of the Year. Also almost unanimous. And teammate Will Anderson, AP Defensive Rookie of the Year, the number two and three pick yep. of the NFL draft. That one was closer. People are looking for apologies from me. Yep, they are. And you, in a moment of weakness, while we were at dinner last night, saying, you know, maybe it's justified. The Will Anderson trade is justified. Yep. And I can't believe you said that. I apologize. Based off a Defensive Rookie of the Year award, just because he got awarded things. Like, nothing's changed since the season. We saw Will Anderson play. He was he was awesome. At the time, we said, Will Anderson, probably going to be awesome. Big fan of Will Anderson, one of my favorite players in the draft. So, I don't know. My take hasn't changed. But you apparently have changed because he has an award now, and you think trade justified. Yeah, I do. I do think trade has been justified. I think they got it right. They, you can, ultimately, because we don't know what any of these players are going to be, right? There is, an, there is an unknown element to all of this, which is what are you going to get with the picks? And that's why we focus on process over results, because you never are entirely sure. And the chances are, uh, as we were saying, your argument, our argument was, the chances are there's no way that these players can be good enough to justify the picks that they gave up um, because you're talking more players and they're high value. And if you sort of plot out the averages and the probabilities, they're better off staying with the picks that they had and sacrificing Will Anderson Jr. But 
C.J. Stroud has been Offensive Rookie of the Year and looked like one of the best quarterback prospects to enter the league ever in terms of his immediate performance. He's not a part of the trade-up discussion, though. Will Anderson has won Defensive Rookie of the Year and looks like an extremely good defensive player. So now what you're looking at, and so the third element of that is the pick that they gave up, or now one of the picks that they've given up, because they were so damn good right out of the gate, is what, 26 overall? Yep. So they are going to have given up 26 overall, uh, 33 last year, at, to do to make that move. I'm okay with that. 26 okay. plus 33 equals Will Anderson. I believe that now has been proven to be a fair trade. Therefore, I apologize for saying that the Texans were bad, stupid, and shouldn't have done it. They got it right. That's very nice of you. You the really process, are in a good mood. The ends justify the means, yeah. and the ends were proven correct at this point. I still think it was iffy process, but if you're going to have look, sometimes you're going to put a, a uh, you're going to we're in Vegas. Sometimes you're going to place a bet that does not have a high chance of coming off. If it comes off, fair play, tip to the cap, tip of the cap, fair fucks to you, fair fucks to the Texans. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh. I'm still kind of in wait-and-see mode. Not that you're not happy as a Texans fan. Um, I will also say, with the history of trading up for non-quarterbacks not being great, if you're going to trade up for a 99th percentile model player, 98th percentile model player like Will Anderson, I do believe your hit rate's going to be higher, and right. I think that is that is a good play. Um, so, yeah, I always said Will Anderson's going to be an excellent player, but I, I don't think this – I don't think you feel – as great as the Texans were this year, getting things back on track and winning the division, winning a playoff game, I don't think you feel the effects of this trade until maybe a year or two from now. Because you know we did a mock draft yesterday from uh, the Cabana over at uh, Cabana. at Circa, and they have a pick at twenty-five where they can get a you know starting caliber player. Twenty-five or twenty-six? Twenty, whatever it is, in the twenties. They have a pick where they can get a starting caliber player. Sorry. Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. Even pick. better. I, I apologize even so more. So there's still a play, right? You're still going into the draft right now without a first rounder. Um, the pick 32 was uh, was it 32. You, you know, you're missing out on a player like a Joey Porter Jr. And you're missing out on what another another third round player. You know, we're not going to say it's always going to be the best player. You know, that's a less less. Well, of no, a they rate. flipped. They they got a third back in it. So the third I think evens itself out. We'll say it evens itself. So I mean, it's still like a Joey Porter Jr. and a player at 12, right? And this year's first round. So it's it, it ends up being... they 20, would have gotten somebody at 12. Right. They so would it ends have up gotten being, somebody early second round. Am I right on that? It ends up being 27 and 33 for... And Will Anderson for 12, the other player they could have gotten instead. So, so it's Will this, Anderson... Right. So it's whoever they could have gotten at 12. Yeah. And the next guys off the boat, Jameer Gibbs, Lucas Van Ness, Broderick Jones, Will it's McDonald. The, it's the other player, player plus 27 and 33 or Will Anderson. Correct. And who could those players have been? I said Joey Porter Jr. He's off the board. It could have been the next guy non-quarterback off the board was Sam Laporta, right? And so this is what I'm talking about when doing the math. If Houston, would Houston rather have, let's just do the exact picks. Pick 12 was the, the, the Lions picks. You could have Jameer Gibbs, right. Sam Laporta, and the 27th pick in you this can't, year's draft. You can't do who I'm could just, they have had. I'm giving examples. Yeah. This is who they, they literally could, who they could have drafted. Yeah, but you can't do it that way because that's always going to produce an optimal, like that's the that's the 100th those percentile are, range of outcomes. No, no, those are literally just the next players off the board. Yeah, but that's They not, also could have had, okay, like what's a bad, what's a bad, a worse scenario? 
They could have had Will McDonald, right, who went a few picks later. How dare you. They could have had uh, Matthew Bergeron and the 27th pick, right? So it could have gone poorly. Yeah. But again, like the, the math behind this is still like a three for one, basically. I mean, and even if Will Anderson's great, which I think he's, his trajectory. Jameer Gibbs is was the actual good. pick. The very next pick was Lucas Van Ness. Like it could have been could a have lot been, worse. Yeah, so you can't Ness. look at it as like, here's who they could, could have, have been. Had. Lucas Van Ness, Jonathan Mingo, and the 27th pick this year. Right. It. So it's a range of outcomes. So that's the whole point. It's always a gamble. So the fact that they got the gamble correctly, that they nailed their pick, they got Will Anderson, is worth something. Yeah, and and I so believe I'm, it's again, worth. I'm not, I'm not even being critical of it right now. I'm just saying, like, like, there's still wait and see aspects to it, because it affects your team building going forward. It affects your depth going forward to put all your eggs into one player basket. Yeah, but that one That's player appears to be very good. He, oh, I agree. I thought so at the time that he was very good. So, congrats to the Texans is the bottom line here. C.J. Stroud and Will Anderson. Fair fucks to them. Let's talk a little prize picks. We got a lineup for this weekend. How many of those can I drop before this thing has to be demonetized? I think you're and done. Like, uh, Patrick Mahomes, we're going more than a half passing yard. We got a special, uh, you know, freebie with uh, Patrick Mahomes, theoretically, as long as he doesn't throw for negative passing yards here. Brandon Ayuk, a part of our PFF prize picks lineup. Brandon Ayuk going more than 62 and a half receiving yards. Isaiah Pacheco going more than a half rushing and receiving touchdown. We have Patrick Mahomes plus Brock Purdy going more than 38 and a half rushing yards combined. Chris Jones going more than a quarter of a sack, so we need a half sack or more. And then Christian McCaffrey going more than 90 and a half rushing yards this week this weekend in the big game so that's our uh, that's our prize picks lineup for this week you guys can also play along over at prize picks and it's a good time to do it because if i could find it over here i'm going the wrong way it's the wrong way and wish we had these in order because mm. we got the patrick mahomes free square that i already told you about if mahomes throws for one or more yard you win an extra layer of excitement is added to the big game with prize picks and you take advantage of that exclusive Patrick Mahomes free square offer. If Patrick Mahomes throws for more than one yard during the Super Bowl, you win. You can win a prize by rooting for one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. Don't miss your chance to get in on the action and win big with prize picks. Sign up now. Claim that free square. Prize picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in North America. The easiest, most exciting way to play DFS is just you against the numbers. Pick more. Pick less. It's that easy. Instead of battling thousands of other players, including pros and sharks, you pick more than or less than a 2-6 to six player stat projection. Watch the winnings roll in. You play alongside some of Prize Picks' favorite players like rapper Meek Mill and comedian Andrew Schultz. You can do that. Just find the community plays under the promos tab of the app to view entries from some of the biggest names in the Prize Picks community each week. Prize Picks even offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, you have a player that exits the game in the first half, doesn't return in the second, that player is rebooted. Prize Picks is the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. So go to prizepicks.com slash PFFNFL. Use code PFFNFL. You get a first deposit match up to $100. Great week to do this. Prizepicks.com slash PFFNFL. Use code PFFNFL for a first deposit match up to $100. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. Over at Picks. All right, man. Anything else from an awards perspective from last night coach of the year yeah pff bobby did not win uh, assistant coach of the year he was fourth in the ranking jim schwartz was the fairly runaway number one guy mike mcdonald number two ben johnson number three pff bobby number four browns and texans mopping up yeah the awards and then um stefanski right won overall coach of the year um by a tiebreaker so they both had a uh, kevin stefanski and D'Amico ryans both had 165 total points right and so Stefanski won because one more 
voter voted Stefanski first place over D'Amico Ryan. So a tie break in overall points went with the guy with the most first place votes. Stefanski number one, D'Amico Ryan's number two, Dan Campbell number three, Kyle Shanahan number four, John Harbaugh number five. No sign whatsoever of Matt LaFleur. You were a big LaFleur fan, right? LaFleur I mean, had two third place votes. Was he your third? Uh, he was in my list somewhere. I, he was forgot I, mean, I remember talking were. about him with yeah. you when you were going over your list. I mean, LaFleur, most of the time this is a did you did you uh, exceed expectations type of award. And Stefanski, when you have, I know they had five starting quarterbacks technically. They were already clinched, in the, right? It was at five. But basically with four starting quarterbacks, they made the playoffs, won uh, you know, double-digit games. So that's why Stefanski won. That's why Jim Schwartz won as coordinator of the year. Turned that Browns defense around from very bad to very good. Um, I'm surprised Dan Campbell only got 33 points compared to the 165 that tied for the lead between Stefanski and D'Amico Ryans. I thought Dan Campbell would get a lot more love I mean, I for think the division win, but the, you know they had nine wins last year, right. so with expectations exactly. higher. So that's the thing. You, you have to bear in mind these awards are done as soon as the regular season is wrapped, right? Nothing in the playoffs everything in the playoffs happens after these awards are voted for, right? right? So Dan Campbell, the Lions were expected to be good this year. They were good. They won the division. But the legacy got burnished a bit by yep. getting to the NFC Championship game, taking it to the 49ers, almost beating them, and then coming up just short. That, I think, is sort of what makes you think, yeah, Dan Campbell probably should have got more love. But if you just look at the regular season, it was more of a, an as-expected, you know, par for the, for the course. So that's it on the awards. Um, honors Offensive last player night. of the year, right? You want to talk about it? I mean, just might as well wrap them up with all of them, right? All right, AP Offensive Player of the Year. Where is that? It was Christian McCaffrey fairly comfortably over Tyreek Hill. Those are the it, two. I didn't think it would be that comfortable. No, I mean, those are the two obvious candidates, but um, I, I went the other order, but I think either one is fair. Christian McCaffrey, Tyreek Hill, C.D. Lamb. Then Lamar Jackson, Dak Prescott. Again, another interesting award. You know, you're taking value out of it. You're just, you know, right. it's less of a QB award and more about let's get other positions in there. McCaffrey, definitely well deserved with uh, his as a runner and receiver and what he does for that 49ers offense. Travis Etienne got a third place vote. Yeah, they did. That's got to be Acho. Some of like the the random one off votes are always interesting, of which you've had before. Yeah, you've how been many, one of those guys. How many of them do you think are Acho? Does Acho know who Travis Etienne is? Probably. The man's job is to sling takes yes. every weekend. Yeah. Extreme ones. Mm-hmm. Every week, you know, after after a weekend, I can't imagine him and Travis Etienne have crossed paths often when he's uh, take slinging. You know what I mean? Of course, he knows who he is. I think. But of all the fifty voters who might not know who he is. If I had to pick one, he would be he would be the one. <laughs> I've noticed we're very aggressive at just criticizing people here lately. Yeah, just we're tired and cranky though. On the on the prowl, on the attack here. We, see, we were we were talking to Trevor Sikama earlier in the week. Earlier in the week, you know? And he was he was ground down at that point and he was saying, Man, when I get tired I get cranky and I was in line, I was saying to my I was like, you know, shouting at the guy in front of me for doing something stupid in my head. I'm like, dude, you are not in the same ballpark in terms of crankiness when you get angry we let it out we just start ragging people on the <laughs> podcast when we're cranky michael publicly Lacho, to, th- to millions and millions of listeners it's not even strays these are like direct punches 
I mean, these are these are jabs, <laughs> these are overhand shots. right. I mean, we are bringing these are, it. These are well-aimed, targeted strikes yes. right to the head. No strays here, right. BFF NFL podcast. Uh, Mike Zimmer. Mike Zimmer news. Mike Zimmer going to the Cowboys, a return to the Cowboys. He was there between 1994 and sometime in the mid-2000s. 06. How precise of you. I saw it the other day. I think it's, I think it's 94 to 06. Okay. Mike Zimmer going back to the Cowboys, 67-year-old defensive coordinator. Your thoughts? Uh, I like it. Um, I think Mike Zimmer, even towards the end of his Minnesota tenure, when the Vikings defense overall fell off, it was still really good on third downs. Like, he still clearly had teeth and the ability to design good plays at the right time. Now he gets to go back. I think there's a lot of merit generally to these guys who get to go back to being a coordinator. And by that, I mean they get a whole bunch of crap taken off their plate, you know? All the other 17 jobs that come with being a head coach doesn't have to do any of that anymore. He's just a coordinator. Go coach defense. Get your players where they need to be. Get your scheme where it needs to be. Spend all your time doing that. And the Dallas Cowboys defense has amazing personnel. We've seen that over the last couple of years. So I I think it's a really good appointment. How would you describe his defense? I think, you know, they do a lot of uh, trickeration at the line of scrimmage, a lot of uh, double A gap, uh, sugaring the A gaps, as our friend Greg, uh, Greg Cosell likes to say. But it's a four-man, right? It, there's some similarities to Jim Schwartz there. Where you still, he still wants to win with four up front, but create. But the blitz packages and the third down defense has always been really good for Zimmer. How would you describe his defense? I think it's perfect for the way the league is going right now in defense, which is to increase the frequency and the, uh, the amount of that trickery and misdirection and uh, disguise that's going on, whether it's with you know, linebackers in the A-gap, whether it's with rotating safeties, pre and post snap, like pressure looks, all those kinds of things. Zimmer already did all that stuff with his defense. So it's not, you know, it's, it's a slightly different scheme. It's not the same uh, necessarily as that Mike McDonald defense, but it's the same idea. Like that's the kind of stuff that Zimmer excelled at anyway. Um, I think it's interesting too when you look at the division and what the Eagles just had to deal with and how bad they were at handling blitz packages. And I know they've got Kellen Moore in there, and it's a it's a new offensive system, and they'll you know maybe have better answers against the blitz. But remember, there are points in Zimmer's career they would play the Lions twice a year, and they, there were times where they just broke the Lions' pass protection rules. There was that one game I think Stafford got sacked seven or eight times, and it wasn't because the offensive line was getting beaten up. It was because they just couldn't block it. They didn't know who to block. Right. And they just out-schemed the Lions at that particular time. Zimmer has a lot of those games under his belt historically, and I think that's an interesting matchup going up against the Eagles in particular and how Jalen Hurts uh, didn't really handle the blitz, and the whole system, the the team didn't handle the blitz, so they're going to have to have answers. So it's two new coordinators and everything, but the teams they're going up against, right? I mean, who are the Cowboys trying to beat? What's the hump they're trying to get over? It's the Eagles. It's the 49ers. It's all the best teams in the NFC. And uh, look, Dan Quinn, I think, did a really good job there, but I think this is at least a lateral type of move. Yeah. Bring in Zimmer in for Dan Quinn. I mean, Dan Quinn leaving was a big blow to this defense. He's done a fantastic job over the last couple of years. If you're Dallas, you're like, how do we avoid going backwards losing Dan Quinn? I think Mike Zimmer avoids going backwards. So I I think it's a really nice hire. So there you go, Mike Zimmer going to the Dallas Cowboys. How long we've been going? Time to go to 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 Dr. Allen? Just one last, uh, well, one last programming note. I got an email coming in from somebody, uh, one of the people our loyal listeners that won a bet from us over the weekend. 
basically saying, how do I redeem my free PFF Plus subscription? Uh, with the Super Bowl and everything else, haven't gotten around to those yet, but I will do that next week. I will get all those accounts set up. I won't personally, but I will send it to somebody that will. Yeah, other program we know, we're going to be back to our old school, three podcast a week schedule. And you know, we're, we're going to get back to that same cadence that we used previously, that Monday, Wednesday, Thursday cadence. Uh, Monday, I don't know if we're going to do it this Monday, but we'd like in the offseason leading up to the draft to, to talk mock drafts. We'll mock draft Monday because mock starts with M and Monday starts with M, and I think that works well. So nice. mock draft Mondays coming up, you know, different ways that we like to talk draft. Free agency's coming up soon. I think within the next couple of weeks we'll be fixing every team in five minutes or less, oh, right, as we always tend to do. So we got all that stuff coming up, but we'll be going back to three days a week next week from a mock draft standpoint. Nice. Any uh, any name drops? You want to name drop anybody uh, around here? Who are you seeing? The Rock was here yesterday. The Rock was here yesterday. Uh, extra security. I could not get close to The Rock. Did you try? <laughs> I just wanted to say, hey, Rock, you're my high school baseball coach's girlfriend's niece's husband. Right. I just wanted to say, hello, you know, we are connected, a couple degrees of separation. And you were bodied you know, by big the security? I, I couldn't even get into the bathroom over there. Right. There's like 15 people. Why does The Rock need security? Why does he need that level of security? I'm just saying, I feel like if you'd taken a run at it, you could have at least beaten one of them. Yeah, I didn't time it up well. I mean, if he shows up again today, maybe we'll we'll take a chance. I mean, those guys, like, you got a question. You're, you're The Rock security, right? You're generally on the lookout for, you know, potential threats, but you're not, like, braced for contact. Up, How you doing? You know? Yeah. You're not taking a pass set ready to stop a giant six foot ten lug launching himself at you. I feel like you right. could have taken a run and beaten one guy. All right, if we see like a high end celebrity walks around here, maybe I'll, I'll take some chances here today. Okay, uh, later. That's all I'm asking. Trust um, yourself. Trust your speed. Oh, trust your size. We didn't talk about the Hall of Fame. Do you want to do a quick okay. Hall of Fame reaction? Sure. From last night. Did we add that? To, we can add that. 2024 to class: Dwight Freeney, edge rusher; Devin Hester, kick return, punt return specialist; Andre Johnson, wide receiver; Julius Peppers, edge rusher; Patrick Willis, linebacker; Randy Gratishar, and Steve McMichael from the senior uh, committee. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of guys that we have now. We, we have more guys where we like have their entire PFF career. Right. A guy like Patrick Willis, who was one of our top linebackers year in year out. Um, Dwight Freeney going in, Julius Peppers, you got two defensive ends there. Julius Peppers, the only guy that was a first ballot guy this year. Yeah, and we're already looking forward to next year's first ballot guy like Luke Keekley. He's right. already on the ballot next year, man. Yeah. Um, Luke Keekley on the ballot for the first time in the same year as Adam Vinatieri. I'm fine it's with like this. like 25 years between them. Oh my age. gosh, it's crazy. Um, yeah, Vinatieri started his career in like 96. So, I mean, he was in the year 15 or 16 when Keekley entered the league. <laughs> and they're in the same Hall of Fame class. Um, yeah, I thought I thought the class was good. A guy like Antonio Gates probably gets snubbed. Yeah, definitely. I think Gates will get in at Gates some point. Gates has 116 career touchdowns. That's 100. more than Tony Gonzalez, who's like the everlasting tight end record right. guy and, and everything. And um, Steve Largent of the Seahawks at one point was like, you know, he had 100. Like 100 used to be this yeah. I mean, you know, Don Hudson. Barrier Don Hudson had, a, had 99, right? Yeah. And that was the record for like a s half a century yeah. until uh, Largent broke it. And I know there's more scoring nowadays and there's more games or whatever, but um, yeah, 100 used to be a big, a big milestone. I mean, it still touchdowns. is a pretty it freaking is. big milestone. But yeah, Gates was unbelievable, man. He was uncoverable in his prime. Uh, former basketball player. I don't know if you knew that. I've, I've heard that once or but twice. But yeah, we're, we have faith Antonio Gates will get in. 
I still think there's this backlog of receivers, the Tory Holtz and Reggie Waynes of the world, they did not get in. That I mean, should probably be in if they're going to let some others in. 116 touchdowns, still ranked seventh all time. And the only people ahead He's of him. seventh all time? Yeah. Eights? And the only people ahead of him are obviously wide receivers. He'll get in. He'll get in. But uh, yeah, good class. Julius Peppers, an absolute freak of a player, uh, picked in the top five. Uh, movement skills, ability, and he had some longevity to him. Uh, and then Dwight Freeney, just an unstoppable pass rusher. Not, I mean, he didn't play the run all that well, but it wasn't asked to, and was just unreal getting to the quarterback. Yeah, yeah. Dwight Freeney, Dwight Freeney was the guy with that unstoppable spin move that nobody could could get a handle on for his entire NFL career, even late in his career. You know, bouncing around the league, six different teams he played for, only four of which I had any recollection of last yeah, night. Yeah, we played that game last night. I only got four of them, I think. Right. Um, but he was suiting up, I think, for Arizona and dropping that spin move on Andrew Whitworth when he was still at the peak of his still powers, it. and it still worked, right? Like, that was absolutely incredible. Julius Peppers had amazing longevity. I think he's fourth all-time in the sack list, played for, like, 17 seasons as an edge rusher. Um, amazing by him. Andre Johnson, I was kind of surprised, got in that easily, I guess, quote-unquote. He always felt like the underrated guy in his career. All the attention was on Larry Fitzgerald or whoever, and Andre Johnson just kept cooking on his own in Houston, regardless of who the quarterbacks were. Um, and he got in pretty quickly. Like I said, not first ballot, but... I think Andre Johnson was right. I think though. he deserves yeah. to get in, but I'm surprised it was that comfortable. Give, like Chris Carter was waiting for like a decade to get in, you know? Yeah. yeah, I think there's a backlog of receivers, and I don't think it's just because of the, the changes in the game. I think there's just, I don't know, there's receivers that probably need to get in. Looking ahead to next year, Eli Manning on the ballot for the first time. Luke Keekley, who we mentioned. Marshall Yonda yeah. would be a good little test case because I think um, big PFF guy, Marshall Yonda, we would definitely put him in. I don't know where the voters will land there. Marshawn Lynch, Terrell Suggs, Darren Sproles, Joe Staley, Akeem Tlaib, Demarius Thomas, Clay Matthews, Ryan Khalil, just some of the names who will be eligible next year. Yep. All right. Well, it's been fun over here on uh, on Radio Media Row. We're going to try to set up Sunday night right after the game and give you your Hall of Fame recap. Uh, appreciate everybody tuning in. Go check out our other shows this week. We did free agency preview. We did a mock draft from from Circa. Shout out again to Circa, an unbelievable sports book. Great, great place to watch the big game if you're in Vegas here on Sunday. Um, but for now, we're going to go to Dr. Alan Sills, the uh, chief medical officer of the NFL, breaking down some of the uh, hard hard hitting questions, Sam, mm-hmm. about player health and safety here. Appreciate everybody. We'll see you again next week with more PFF NFL podcast. And we're joined by Dr. Alan Sills, Chief Medical Officer in the NFL. You joined us last year with uh, Sam. Appreciate having you back. Thanks for having me. Sam, you want to kick things off? Yeah, um, we we had an injury expert in our, our podcast this year talking about uh, you know all the week's injuries. One of the things we seemed to spend our entire time doing was talking about hamstring injuries. And we, we was there a big uptick in soft tissue injuries in the NFL this year? I think there was some kind of initiative to, to kind of really dive into that. Did you guys learn anything from that? And are there going to be sort of preventative changes off the back of that next year? Yeah, in fact, we, we had a major major intervention this year, and it, and it was successful. Right. We actually were able to drive those injuries down significantly, particularly in the preseason. That's where we really put our focus, because how we bring players back, first two weeks of training camp and the rest of preseason, has a big ripple effect for the rest of the season, because a okay. lot of guys get hurt in preseason, and they'll have a nagging injury throughout the entire right. season. 
So we did um, spend some dedicated time in the offseason working with clubs on that. We did see that pay dividends. We were down about 20% overall in those soft tissue strains during our preseason, okay. which is a pretty significant drop. And then we saw almost a 50% reduction in recurrent injuries during the regular season. So there's more work to be done, but we're definitely seeing the, the early returns from that effort of working with clubs on that. And sometimes people ask, well, why are you guys focused so much on that? Hamstring strain, soft tissue strains, number one burden injury in the NFL. Right. That means that guys miss more time for that injury than for any other injury. And so it's a natural point to focus on because that's what keeps players off the field. Yeah, as analysts, once I hear hamstring, hamstring, I'm like, uh-oh, you know, it's week one, it's week two. Yeah. Is this going to be a thing through right. week 10, right. week 15? Have you, uh, the with the soft tissue injuries, how much of that is like the last 10 years, just less practice time? And how do you balance, you know, the players have been fighting for fewer practice reps and everything. Yeah. How do you balance practice time and, and how did you go about implementing you know a better ramp up period well you're right there is a sweet spot there you've got to do enough training to get prepared to the demands of the game but you don't want to overtrain. so um, one of the neat things now compared with 10 years ago is we just have so much more data every player as you know wears a gps tracking chip and practices in game so we know how far they ran how fast they ran how many high speed efforts and all that we can really try to use that to go back to clubs and say hey these are the things we think prepare players but don't overdo it you know, to the point of pushing them past that red line and getting them injured. So it's finding that balance of getting enough high-speed efforts. Interestingly enough, one of the things we look at is if guys don't play in preseason games, you've got to find a way to get that game-level intensity before the start of the regular right. season, or they'll have that strain in the first couple weeks of the regular season. Where are we now on the, the discussion when it comes to playing surfaces? Is there now a consensus in terms of what the safest playing <clears throat> surface is? Um, are we going to be moving towards one specific thing? And is something like you know, the World Cup going to help that? They're having the World Cup final at MetLife Stadium. They'll have grass for that, I assume. This is a, yeah. FIFA has grass for, for all their stuff. So are, are we... Because there was always a, a kind of argument, right? Some people were saying there's clearly grass is the better service. The players want grass. But there were other studies that said, actually, it's, it's more complicated than that. We're not 100% sure. Yeah. Well, it is a very complicated topic. So when you think about lower extremity injuries, playing surface is one of those components. But there are other components as well. When you dive into playing surfaces though, you quickly realize we don't just have two surfaces, grass and artificial, we've got 30 different surfaces. And they're very, very different. You know, if you look at the different properties, you know, stiffness, firmness, thickness, moisture content, you know, coefficient of friction, all of these things are different. So we're trying to understand, are there specific characteristics that do correlate with injury? Because obviously you'd like to get rid of those things, right. whatever the surface. We're also looking now more at how do we drive the surfaces to be more consistent overall so that there's less variation when you go from place to place. Hard to do because we have a lot of different environments, right? Boston, Massachusetts, very right. different than Jacksonville, very different than Seattle. We were talking earlier about minor league baseball field, same thing, you know, yeah. you've got a lot of environmental factors. But I think where we're going is can we do better measurements to really characterize the field? Can we narrow the range of properties and get those fields to be more consistent? And then hopefully we continue to learn, are there specific surface characteristics that do correlate with injury? We are working with FIFA, we will learn from that. I mean, the reality is right now today, you can't grow a high quality grass surface and keep it in for months inside to withstand the kind of forces that NFL right. players put on it. That's an important point because they're very, very different, different than soccer players. FIFA, yeah. But we're working with them to learn about that effort and how that might be evolved because you know we'd love to get to the ability to, to have those surfaces 
um, as I said, that are uniform across the league. How much of the surface question is actually what's under the surface? Because if you go back and watch like old tape, it's like the AstroTurf back when yeah. it was like a carpet laid on top of concrete. Yeah, that's right. Now there's presumably varying levels of padding and whatever else goes under the surface in each individual stadium. It's absolutely correct, it's a great observation. There are clearly differences in construction underneath. And again, whether you're talking artificial or grass, right. And there's also a third category, it's called a hybrid surface, which is mostly grass, but with some fibers of artificial worn uh, woven within it. So all of that has to be considered, and you're exactly right, what's underneath it, the drainage, the heating, all of that plays a role. So we're working not only with FIFA, but leagues all around the world. You know, when we do our international games, we go and meet with those international soccer leagues and others, and we're trying to understand what are they doing, how do they regulate it, how do they measure it, and, and how might that translate to the NFL. So there's going to be a lot more we're going to know about this in a year or two than we do today. Right. Why do you think the players, it feels like the players association is getting very aggressive with their fight for grass over turf. And yeah. I know you said there, there might be 30 surfaces rather than you know A or B. Yeah. Why are they so aggressive at this point, especially if, say, you guys are looking at data, they have data. If everyone's looking at the same data, why are they so yeah. aggressive with grass? Well, I think we do share all the same data. And our engineers and their engineers are the ones who work together on this. I mean, they're very collaborative and, and they, they have the same goals in this. I, yeah. I think it's well known that many artificial surfaces actually return a lot of energy to the body. So you put force in the ground and it kind of comes back into your body, that's going to make you sore. You're going to have some soreness. You're going to have, if you've got a chronic tendonitis in your knee, you're going to feel that. So I, so I think you know, player's input and player's preference absolutely matters. You also have to consider though the performance aspect. What surfaces do they feel they can perform the best on? Because we could make a surface, for example, that, that no one ever had a knee injury on, but people would fall down all the time. It'd be right. so slick, you can't perform on that. So it's finding that balance of performance, comfort, safety, consistency, that's really what we're trying to do together. I was going to ask about that, the quality of the game, because I think uh, the Patriots back in, I think it maybe 06 to 07, maybe went from grass to turf after they had their field completely torn up, and then eventually they started scoring more points once they went to turf yeah. and had a cleaner field. We've seen games, I think it was the 08 Dolphin-Steelers game, where it was just like puddles everywhere. It was 3 nothing the game. Yeah. How much does the quality of the game factor in. I know you're focused more on the injury aspect. Who's making that final call with, you know, quality of the game versus, you know, keeping guys safe? Well, safety really is our top priority, and that's always going to drive the conversation. Um, but I think, again, consistency. How do you get to that consistent surface so that there's less variability? And, yeah, you know, sense. you go back and you look at video from 20 years ago. Let's go back to baseball. We used to play in baseball stadiums, right? Remember yeah. when there was dirt? Yeah, right. The infield stadium. dirt that right. was actually part of the field? I mean, that's not that long ago. It was ago. aesthetically pleasing, though. It was fun. It's like, all right, this is a September game, you know? Right. So, so there's a lot more work to be done. Yeah. We have come a long way. But again, our ability to test and measure that. And by the way, fields actually vary depending on where you are on the field, too. Imagine between the hash marks. Sure. Very different than the end zones from the side. So again, the goal is how do you make that homogeneous field that, that is safe and plays well all throughout? And, we're just developing better tools and a better understanding of that. We have the same exact goal of the Players Association. We want the best field that's safe, that you can perform on, right. and that you can maintain over time throughout the course of our season, which again goes from very, very right. hot weather to some very, very frigid weather. Very true. Late are, part of the season. Are there times when um, you know safety is a top priority? Are there times where something else will stop something happening that would be a safety improvement. So the guardian caps, those kind of oversized rugby scrum cap things, yeah. those are now mandatory, right, in, in practices, contact practices, preseason, training yeah. camp, all that kind of thing. So presumably they make a tangible, provable difference to concussions, those kinds of things. What's stopping them being mandatory for every game? 
Yeah. Why, why are they not? Why do we take them off once sure. the game starts? Well, the reason we started with practices is that's where we had the data. Okay. So guardian caps have been used at the collegiate level for probably a decade or more, and you've got over 100 NCAA schools that use them. And we had lots and lots of data to say, hey, in a practice environment, they're safe. Because mm -hmm. if you think about any new innovation, yes, you want to make sure that it's doing what you 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 expect it to do, but you don't have an unintended consequence as well. Sure. So, so it was important for us to, to do it incrementally, to look at, hey, what is this going to do? Are there any potential downsides? When you talk about gameplay, we did not have any of that data, right? It hasn't been worn at games at other levels until recently. This fall, you saw a couple of high schools do it in okay. Minnesota. Last spring, you saw, for example, Colorado wear it in their spring game. We think there may be a couple this year. And we've gotten that data, we're analyzing it, we're looking at it, but again, before we can say, yeah, it's, it's okay to do in-game, we just want to make sure there's not any unintended consequence or anything that might create a situation of, of, of a lack of safety. So does that mean we're heading to a situation where those become the norm in-game and it's just we have to do it incrementally and make sure it's it's the data scales, right? Yeah, it translates. we're continuing to research it, but where I think we're really heading is how do you take that that pretty simple add-on, a piece of padding, and actually incorporate it into the helmet itself? So that's where Rather I was, than yeah. a shell on the outside, let's think about how it could, could be that's, part of the construction. That was the other thing I was wondering is, you know, we've been locked into this world of hard shell, outer football helmet right. forever, right? And right. The, they've changed, you know, it's not, we're now getting all these kind of creases and, right. and areas where you, there's absorption and all that kind of thing. Right. But we haven't taken the kind of fundamental step of, what if it looked more like a rugby scrum cap or more right. like a guardian cap? Is that where there this is going to head at some point? Sam just wants to turn <laughs> it into rugby. He wants more laterals and he wants more rugby. There's always scrums. a hidden agenda there, right? You, you found it. No, listen, I think um, we've seen tremendous innovation in the helmet space in the last 10 years, full stop. But I think the next five years are going to be even more. We're looking at things like position-specific helmets. Why should every guy on the field wear the same helmet, that's, right? That's smart. It turns out that certain players get hurt in certain ways. For example, quarterbacks, where do they get concussed? Usually in the back of the head, they're throwing the ball, they fall, the two protected fall, yeah. hits the ground. So this year you saw quarterback-specific helmets with extra padding in that area. Linemen, O-line, D-line, a lot of frontal impacts. Right. Why not reinforce that area? So I think over the next five years, you'll see different materials, you'll see different design, and you'll see helmets tailored to specific positions. But one other really important point, the helmet's never going to be the be-all and end-all to prevent it against concussion. Sure. It's equally important that we look at the game and say, how can we take head contact out? I think of the helmet as kind of like the, the airbag or the seatbelt in your car. It's there if there's a crash. Safest things to avoid the crash in the first place. So I think both parts of that, that uh, approach are important. Uh, roughly, would you say more concussions in the run game or the pass game? Do you have a feel for that? Yeah, right now it's the passing game. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the statistically most numerous positions affected are wide receivers and defensive secondary, you know, yeah. safeties, DBs, who are typically colliding in space and either going up for a ball, falling to the ground, or colliding with each other. So you got that, the push and pull, I think I've seen in the last 15 years, is the NFL's made more rules to, you know, lead to more passing, right? The rules are favoring the passing game, right. so how do you balance the rules to make the game more exciting, pass yeah. game leads to more points versus the safety of players. You know, one of the things that the commissioner always says is he believes the game can be safer and more exciting. Yeah. Those are not mutually exclusive. And I think that's our challenge. How do we keep the game exciting, preserve all the things that fans love to watch, but try to make incremental safety improvements? And that's what we spend our time and energy thinking about throughout the year and in the offseason. And, and when you're talking about, you know, we want to try and take the head out of the game, and this is the same conversation that basically every sport is having, right? Yeah. Rugby, same thing. How do we get these head collisions out of it? Um, obviously, part of the way of doing that is by legislating new rules, different rules, try and punish those hits. 
But the other element has always got to be, let's make sure we are coaching that element as well. And I, I feel like whether it's head contact stuff in, in football or whether it's the hip drop tackle that's now a big talking point as well, I feel like football has had this tackling technique problem for years now that hasn't been addressed the way it has in some other sports. And it's a, it's a really fundamental coaching technique difference between football and other tackling sports that, you know, rugby has this saying cheek to cheek, right? Head cheek against butt cheek, that's the way you avoid the head contact, you get it out of it. Football almost teaches the exact opposite from a fundamental level. You put your head on the other side, you get more mass in front of them, you stop the yeah. forward progress. So how do you guys work with, instead of saying, let's just change every rule and make all of these plays illegal. We've also got to try and, because the, the pushback is, well, how am I supposed to tackle them? Yeah. Then? Well, there right. is a way, we're just not teaching That's you right. that yet. Yeah, I'm gonna take this guy on the road with me. Okay? Let's go. Uh, he's, you know. he's finally got his dream. We're gonna Consult get it all going Look, here. I've got an agent over here. We'll do the paperwork. <laughs> we got it done. No, you're absolutely right. A uh, couple of points I'd like to emphasize. <laughs> we'll never legislate head contact out of the game through rules. Full stop. It is about technique, and you can tackle or block or execute any move using your head or not using your head. And we see that. We see that in the data. We see now that we can track head contact. Some offensive linemen that have a very high rate of head contact nearly every play, others that are way, way, way lower than that, two or three times lower. And so you're right on the money that coaching and teaching and emphasizing that is, is going to be a big part of the solution. You know, it's always said you can't change what you can't measure, right? right? So being able to measure that is the first step. And we actually were able to do that this year. Now through using an artificial intelligence computer vision program, we can measure head contact, for example, a line, D-line. And we actually gave that data to our teams on a weekly basis, on a per player. You know, we like, hey, this is your player's rate of head contact. Um, I think we've got to continue to emphasize more and more of that data, and we've got to work with coaches just on what you talked about. How do you block and tackle in the safest way that gets the head out of there? Again, always be some inadvertent contact. Players, you know, collide when they don't mean to or they hit the ground. But that technique-based tackle or block, Getting the head out of that is a, is a super important part of this, and that's not a rule change. That is coaching and teaching and emphasis. And is it harder to do in the NFL because theoretically you want to be getting to those changes when they're kids? Absolutely. You want to be getting to it way before they get anywhere near the NFL. Again, you're right on the money. We have to continue to work with other leagues and levels of play to say, hey, this is the safe way to play the game. You can still be effective. It's not any less effective. Right. But it's, it's a safer way to do it, and it's going to extend your career and actually make you equally successful but healthier throughout because you're not going to have the risk of injury. Right. Sam, you're going to teach our youth I'm how here. to tackle? I'm here. Look, I, I said Solf's the agent. We'll talk to him. We'll work the numbers out, but I'm available. I'm available and willing to help. Do we wrap it up with this uh, real quick? Hip drop tackle is a big uh, talking point this offseason. Any changes coming with that? It's an active conversation. Listen, this isn't just a unilateral decision for me or the league. Obviously, our competition committee and our coaches, players, everybody's going to have input into that. But, you know, when we started looking at specifically high ankle sprains and fractures of the lower leg, that particular style of tackle really jumps out because it has an astronomically higher injury rate. So I think it has to be a conversation where you say, okay, we're seeing this. It's leading to injury. Is it something we can change? But it'll be a broad off-season conversation. All right, Dr. Alan Sills, Chief Medical Officer in the NFL. Appreciate the time. Thanks for having me.